0: So the theme for the talk tonight is passion and desire on the path. So uh, those two words, passion and desire, um, have got a bit of a bad press uh, in, in well, a lot of spiritual traditions, but maybe especially in, in Buddhist teachings, and we can tend to kind of demonize them a little bit. So I want to go, I'd like to just explore a few of the different aspects of this, and uh, really, of course, it's a huge subject, so just to touch on a few. <clears throat> it seems to me, as uh, I was talking yesterday a little bit, uh, the movement of the Dharma, the movement of the practice, is going against the stream. It's going against the stream, certainly culturally, and not just of this culture, but probably most cultures that have ever existed in uh, human history. It's going against that stream, and it's also going against uh, quite a strong inner stream that we have of greed, and acquisition, and aversion, and delusion. So to go against the stream in a real way, in in a significant way, We okay there? Yeah. To go against that stream, inner and outer, it takes a huge amount of energy, enormous amount of energy. Uh, where is that energy going to come from? Where is that energy going to come from? <clears throat> and is it possible actually, if we just talk about passion in practice, is it possible actually uh, we need Passion. We need passion and desire. So when we uh, hear about or we'll read the story of the Buddha, and uh, when you're familiar with it, and he leaves uh, the luxury of his home, etc., and he's <coughs> out there, and he goes through all these austerities, and he describes a meeting. Uh, you know, one lentil a day or two grains of rice, and then the next day, next month, he only eats one grain of rice, and that, you know, <laughs> I don't know how true it is, but, and then fasting, etc., and it's really quite extreme, uh, and he said he could um, press his uh, finger into his abdomen and feel his spine uh, without much effort. So when we read that, we get a sense, I mean, the overwhelming sense, of course, is, is one of extreme renunciation. But, uh, and later he renounced that, that level of renunciation, actually. But uh, what also strikes me is the amount of passion involved in that. Not just the renunciation, there's something uh, so uh, determined and passionate and kind of driven almost about that. And that often doesn't um, stand out to us. And I heard, I can't remember where it was recently, or maybe I read it, uh, there's a, there was a, a very well-known, very very well-respected and loved uh, Tibetan teacher called Kalu Rinpoche, and I think he died sometime in the last 15 years. And very, um, very profound teacher, great being. And he said that his teacher was uh, actually living in a monastery, but not as a monk. He uh, was living there as the tailor. He was the monastery tailor, if I remember rightly. And one day, Kali Rinpoche's teacher uh, was well, not a teacher, was a tailor. And it suddenly occurred to him, I don't know what happened, occurred to him that he was going to die. It just struck him really obviously in faith, and so what he did when he had that realization, he locked himself in the monastery toilet, or well one of the toilets, locked himself in the monastery toilets for seven years, <laughs> and I assume someone sort of shoved him food when they really realized he really wasn't going to come out <laughs> until until he had reached some degree of awakening. There's a lot of passion there. <laughs> now if that happened at Guy House, <laughs> and someone came to me and said, we've got a yogi world, for It's just, we don't see that level here, we don't see that level in the culture and, you know, heaven knows what health and safety would say about anyway. uh, I also uh, read recently about, this course not just in the Dharma, about um, Captain Scott expedition to the Antarctic, and it was actually chronicled, I think, by a a guy called Wilson. So there was a bunch of scientists on this expedition to explore the Antarctic, I think. And this person was writing about it, sort of keeping a journal, and he said there were all these scientists from different fields of science, and it was absolutely freezing cold. You can imagine, I don't even know, know how much below zero it was. And they had nothing to do uh, in the evenings. <laughs> and so they, they were in their tents, and what they would do was someone would lecture on their subject. And so they were all interested in Antarctica, one person was a geologist, and one person was a, you know, biology of Antar- you know inter- a biologist of Antarctic wildlife, etc. And so each evening would be, feature a different lecture on, on this kind of stuff. And this, this description was, they, they were so passionate about knowledge, that despite the cold, they would uh, barter with each other. Say, "You give me an extra geology lesson, I'll give you my pair of socks." <laughs> <laughs> and I read it, and it was quite—it was just so so much passion there, despite the despite the you know obviously extremely adverse conditions. So, what is it that, if we need that passion, what is it that's going to? allow that passion to come in? So this is a very important question. Partly, it's actually sensing the possibilities of practice. This is really important. Sometimes, uh, the reason why the Buddha was uh, that, that committed, that forthright, was he had a very deep intuition of what the possibilities of practice are. And it's something that, it's. it's not that common to actually be fully in touch with. So what does it mean for us? I'm not wanting to thrust anything on anyone. What does it mean? What, what is my sense of the possibilities of practice? And for some people that is, you know, complete unexcelled liberation, but for others that just doesn't do it. Then I mean, you have to ask, well, what, what is my sense of possibility? In a way, the Buddha was was... What was remarkable about the Buddha was that he had a desire for happiness, like, like we all do. Like all human beings do, have a desire for happiness. But instead of kind of selling short, he had this sense, this intuition, that there was a kind of ultimate happiness. There was a happiness so beyond anything that could be imagined. He said, I'm not going to stop until i got that. And then he was uncompromising about it. Uncompromising. That level of uh, uncompromisation, (laughs) that level of commitment, is extremely rare. Usually, something comes along, we say, "I'll settle for that," and and we don't. uh, Our desire actually doesn't take root. It doesn't. uh, It doesn't uh, engulf us in flames. So in, in the case of Kala teacher it was a sense of death and death, contemplating death gave a sense of spiritual urgency. Um, so there's uh, many of you know the teacher Krishnamurti, who also died sometime in the last well, probably 20 years, I, think, I can't remember. And he had this uh, phrase that he would uh, say sometimes and <coughs> it sounds quite harsh on the surface but if I remember, he says, We come to the infinite well of life with a thimble, and so we go away thirsty. We come to the infinite well of life with a thimble. You know what a thimble is? It's just that little, tiny little cup thing you put on your thumb for sewing. We come to the infinite well of life with a thimble, and so we go away thirsty. It's worth reflecting on, it's like, why is it that we actually ask so little out of life? Why is it that we kind of, in a way, sell ourselves short, sell our sense of possibility short? So partly, it's, it's this being out of contact with, not willing to contemplate death. The brevity, the ephemerality of human life. And because it's scary, we shy away from it, but I think uh, that in many cases our passion, our desire, needs that. We need to be living in the light of death, we need to um, be contemplating that, every day really. Death is coming, and we don't know when. Our life is very, very short. This isn't morbid, it's more, it gives a sense of urgency, of preciousness, of beauty even, of mystery. And other factors, and I touched on them yesterday, sort of not getting too involved in in the attractions of the world and the, 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 uh, the complexity of the demands of the world, and a factor of joy, so renunciation of joy being factors that really uh, feed the passion. I won't talk about it too much now. So when we look at our life, and our life in practice, we can see, I think this goes almost for everyone, that our passion is not steady. There's no such thing as, as uh, a steady passion, even a steadily increasing passion. If we look at the rhythms of our practice and our life, we'll see there's times when it's stronger and times when it wanes, and that's just natural. But are we generally moving to take care of the passion, that we're um, buoying it up when it needs buoying up. And so that kind of passion for practice certainly, it may not look very dramatic, it may not look the kind of way that we think of passion. Just so certainly sitting and walking here and doing the work, it's quite a... it's a quiet passion. But, you know, there, there are people in this hall been here for months, it takes a quiet passion to sustain through that. Just sustain the intentionality, sustain the commitment, sustain the interest and the effort. A quiet passion. As I say, it's not steady. And I remember, um, I think it was 2001, and I was living in America, and I went... I was feeling a bit kind of dry in my practice, and not really, like the fire had died down a lot, and I was still sitting every day and all that, but just not the same oomph. And I went to my teacher and I, I, I said to her, you know, this is going on, and she said, well, you know, come and see me every, every couple of weeks or something. And so I started doing that, and we just talked about practice and this and that. And I think some within about six months, due to whatever, um, I had decided to give away everything And leave America, (laughs) quit my job, etc., 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 and devote everything to the Dharma. And uh, and came on retreat here actually for a while, for a long time. Uh, Just the the point is that uh, there was a a feeling of a lack of passion, a feeling of lack of full full fire and vitality, and just doing something to invigorate it. It will go through these up and downs. Can we um, address them? Expect them, but address them. When we talk about desire in practice, um, in a way, I don't know if that's... if that's, uh, if we need to then talk about goals, because I don't know if there's such a thing as desire in practice without a sense of goal. can be a very charged question. Can be a charged question. Oftentimes we have a real resistance to talking about or in conceiving our practice in terms of goals. It's quite painful for us because of the all different reasons, We're too much striving in our life, too much contraction around uh, getting somewhere in life or achieving something. But I wonder, I wonder if it's possible for passion to be, and this is an open question, I wonder if it's possible for passion to be there without a sense of goal, for desire to be there without a sense of goal. And if actually a sense of goal in practice helps to direct and channel the energy that we have, our life energy. We can have all kinds of reactions to the notions of, uh, of goals in practice, and it can be quite painful and something that we're quite averse to. But in a way, life is full of goals, life is full of goals, full, full, full of goals. So even in the day here, when the uh, bell goes for lunch at 12.30, then the goal of everyone is to uh, <laughs> drop what they're doing and, <laughs> and make their way to the lunch hall, and mm. then the goal is to get the food in the mouth. It's not a big deal, it's not a big deal. Life is full of goals, and certainly, you know, on every level, life is full of goals. And if you're involved in, in a, you know, in any kind of relationship, a friendship or, or a spouse or partner or whatever, uh, it takes a lot of work, a sense of effort and direction to, to actually make that work. We're moving towards something. It takes time. What's the problem with goals? This is really, this is really a necessary question for us to ask. What's the problem with goals? Is there a problem with goals? Or is it that when we have a goal, the self tends to wrap, it, wrap itself around it and make a problem out of it? So what happens if I or another teacher describes some, you know, some experience in practice or some insight or something, and we think, I haven't got that yet. And what happens at that point? Do we then uh, take it as a measurement of self? and self-worth? Does the self-view come into it? If it does, it's going to be painful. There's no question about it. It's going to be painful to the degree that we're identified with the whole process of getting somewhere, and take it as a personal an indication of where we are personally, how much we're worth and our value. Goals are going to be painful. But we actually don't need to take it that way. Life is full of goals. Can we find a relationship with goals that's not problematic? Because life is full of them, can we find a way that's just not a problem? So is it bad that maybe passion, desire need a goal? In practice. Shantideva, one of the um, great Mahayana teachers, Uh, He talks about what's what's, uh, a balanced and right effort in practice. If we're moving towards something and applying effort in our practice, which is what we are doing, what we should be doing. He said it it needs four factors. One of them is a sense of aspiration. In other words, we need to have a sense of where we're going, what we're aspiring to. And like I said, for some it's, you know, the big one, complete unexcelled liberation, Nothing less. And for others, it's it's more like, well, I just want to learn a bit more about calmness. (coughs) But there needs to be a sense of aspiration for effort to channel itself. And so to actually be clear about what the aspiration is, to be clear, and reflect, what is my aspiration? Aspiration. Second one, he said, is confidence. So again, this is quite interesting. Often we shy away from the whole sense of goals. So we say, I'm, I'm just, know, maybe other people can do that. I can't do that. It touches right into our sense of lack of uh, worthiness to even aspire. Lack of um, self-esteem that we'll be able to. It's a very interesting area. But in order that the effort be... Um, workable, be helpful, we actually have to have a sense that this goal to which I'm aspiring to, little old me is able, you know, I can't do that, I can't get there, there's some confidence there. So aspiration, confidence, third one, joy, and I touched on this in the opening talk, nourishing, nourishing a sense of joy, a sense of well-being in the mind. So if we come into meditation or if we come into a retreat, and it's like, right, down to business. And, uh, squeezing the, the life and, and the, the, the blood out of our being, out of the meditation, out of the practice, Not, nothing's going to come out of that. You're gonna, the, the fruit that comes out is going to be very shriveled and, and dry. So finding, as we're, as we're um, applying effort, finding a sense of joy is really, really important. Aspiration, confidence, joy. Fourth one, rest. Knowing when it's enough and resting. So we have desire in life. There's no question about it. We have desire in life. The movement of desire shapes our life at every level. At every level. From the most gross who we end up hanging out with, what kind of reactions we get back from people in the world, what kind of place we're in, from the most gross to the most subtle, actually shapes the world that we experience, the world we live in, shapes our momentary experience. The movement of desire shapes our life at every level. Uh, This isn't... Just, obviously, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a quote from the Upanishads, which I think predate the Buddha a couple of hundred years, and it's talking about this. It says, you are what your deep, driving desire is. As is your desire, so is your will. As is your will, so is your deed, your action. As is your deed, so is your destiny. So it's really important, I think, to have a look in our life, a, a, a really uh, caring and close look. How and where is desire moving? How is it moving and where is it moving? So the other day in the question about the um, Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, one factor is uh, four right efforts. It's the, right effort factor of the Eightfold Path, what the Buddha talked about. Putting in effort to cultivate what is beautiful in the heart. So all those uh, lists, equanimity and mindfulness and compassion and loving-kindness and patience and generosity and interest, etc., calmness, cultivating them and letting go of what's not helpful, judgmentalism, irritability, disinterest, anger, uh, boredom, Agitation, etc., etc. How and where is the desire moving? Mostly in this tradition, to use that phrase again. In this tradition, uh, the the teaching is is has been weighted more about letting go of desire, letting go of wanting anything to happen. If you look, uh, if you read the, the original Buddhist teaching, there's actually a whole other sort of stream of way of practicing within the teachings and it's actually about following this desire for happiness and just refining it and refining it so that one says actually I am very interested in happiness, I do want happiness, I do want pleasure, but I want a really good kind of happiness, a really good pleasure. And then one moves, and one finds a certain level of that in meditation, and then a deeper level, and then a deeper level, and then a deeper level. And this, by itself, uh, leads all the way to awakening. It's not. I'm just putting that out there because I think it's important to realise that there's actually uh, more than one way uh, to move forward on this path. and where is desire moving? For, for a person of practice, for a person committed to the path, how and where uh, is the passion and the desire, where is it not going for someone really committed? Where is it not going? Well, not squandering, and all this is very human, so I don't mean to uh, have any judgment with this, it's more just a question of looking at these energies and asking oneself. Not squandering our passion and desire, which is a form of energy, passion and desire is a form of energy, I'll come back to this. We have a limited amount of energy, in a way. Not squandering it on that which does not lead to freedom, that which doesn't lead to truth, that which doesn't lead to love or, or joy, or deep peace. Not squandering it on trivia, not squandering it on just as I mentioned uh, once trying to be a bit more comfortable, have things be a bit more convenient, or just a bit more pleasurable in the realm of the senses. All very human and very understandable, but it's actually sapping our reservoir of passion and desire. And to see this, to see this in our life, and be very clear. Also, not being frittered in a kind of distraction. So you know, to be going in one's day with the radio on in the background, seems insignificant in a lot of ways, or the TV on a lot, or whatever. It doesn't really matter, of course it doesn't matter. But what actually happens to the mind? mind is pulled by this, pulled by the radio, pulled... It's never really settled. One of my very first teachers used to talk about um, the mind kind of being like an electronic capacitor. It has this ability to store energy, to kind of gather energy, and if we're always being distracted by things, the energy cannot uh, gather. No energy, no passion, no desire. Fear. How much of our passion gets, uh, doesn't even get the chance to, uh, to be seen, to flower, because of fear? Fear coming in and just shutting something off, shutting off an avenue of choice in life, shutting off exploration and practice. The Buddha uses this word virya, and it it sometimes means energy or effort or persistence, but uh, it can also be translated as courage, courage. There's something about just not giving in to fear, and of course this is a huge subject too, not giving in to fear that allows our passion to build. So when we think of those words passion and desire, um, perhaps we think immediately of sexual passion, sexual desire, and romantic passion and desire. And in a way, those words, uh, that's the sort of popular image of what passionate, <coughs> passionate, uh, passionate human being, passionate desire, and that's the that's sort of popular image of those words. And not excluding that, not excluding that, certainly from what I'm talking about tonight, uh, as I said, we are lay people, and so we, we do. Uh, we are um, sometimes involved, you know. In, in sexual relationships, in romantic relationships, it's part of our life. And so it needs addressing, and again, this is one of those things that it hasn't, I don't feel it's been, you know, we haven't really fully embraced it as a, as a topic for um, for inquiry and dialogue yet, In I mean, certainly in this tradition, maybe in the, in the Buddhist world as a whole, we tend to kind of leave it aside. And, you know, there's, there's reasons for that. Um, but to re- I think we need, to, we need to inquire into this. Passion and desire in the realm of sex and, and romance. What happens, and these are, I'm just going to put out some open questions, and no, no judgement here, they're really open questions, they're not easy questions either. What happens, can we notice what happens, and actually keep track of what happens, when uh, we have sex, and there isn't the love there? What actually happens to the being and the capacity of the being, the brightness of the being, the love of the being, the actual passion even of the being, in a deep way. When the uh, the sexual relations are just about pleasure and, and there is no love there. What happens, another question, what happens when we're in a romantic relationship and there is love there? Is it, and this this is a difficult question, is it that sometimes it's possible that a love for one person may close our heart to a wider love? that our capacity for love uh, and also for passion and kind of that kind of very deep desire in life is actually getting closed because it's just focusing on one, one being. I'm not saying it does or it doesn't, I mean, it's, it's a question. It can at times, perhaps, it, these are really important questions. Does it, if we're in love, does it actually dampen our hunger? around this, around you know, sexuality and romance, there, there's a whole range of sort of personalities, and some people, uh, they have a lot of energy in that area, and a lot of interest in their area, and it's very alive for them, it's very important in their life, and others much less. Um, and that's fine, that's completely fine, of course it's fine. Um, but another question, are we, do we at times maybe hide behind a path that is about no desire, like Buddhism could be construed as, no desire are we actually hiding a little bit behind that was i can 't remember where it was now, but there was a letter as a, a woman wrote in to to it must have been some spiritual magazine or something, and she wrote in and She was basically complaining about Buddhist boyfriends, uh, not having any oomph, (laughs) because they were not into desire, and not into getting attached, etc. I don't know the details, but is it possible that sometimes there's a kind of, I just don't want to deal with that area of life. Don't want to deal with it, the messiness of it, the agitation of it, the scariness of it. And so, no desire, yeah, that sounds good. Sometimes on retreats uh, we have this uh, phenomenon of what's called the Vipassana Romance. I don't know if you've, you've heard of this. It's uh, when you're on retreat and in the silence and you're very diligently sitting and walking and uh, you know, keeping the eyes down to the ground and focused on it inner processes, and then out of the corner of the eye, one catches sight of, of someone who's very attractive. And then uh, this thing starts building, and it may seem very lovely, and the attention goes to them more and more. and um, uh, Extremely common, extremely common. And uh, I certainly actually think it's quite a beautiful thing. I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> um, it's just part of life. It's part of life. Um, We sometimes, in the quietness, in the openness of being, in the sensitivity, in the silence, the being is actually more open, the heart is more open, it's more touched by the beauty around one. We see the beauty in another man, woman. And and, and we're just more open, more sensitive, we feel it, we're more receptive in that area. Can it be, though, that... um, that we stay with that sense of beauty and sensitivity and receptivity and appreciation or again is it shrinking into I want that, I want that and then we're just uh, fretting about um, you know when we're going to get to the end of the retreat and we're going to actually talk to this person of course often when they open their mouth and you actually hear <laughs> just uh, but I remember, that this hap- it, it's very regular phenomenon of retreat life, and I was teaching a Finland a while ago, and um, we're very young retreats, a lot of young people of course, it's, 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 it was around. And one woman was describing to me, and, and, uh, and I just almost just said, it's, it's wonderful, but please, please, just make sure your retreat doesn't shrink down to that, because that would be a real shame. Because a lot of this practice is about opening opening that passion, that, uh, that desire, that receptivity and sensitivity, opening it wide, not shrinking down. And one thing, one person, I want that, him, her, whatever it is. Which then makes that whole phenomenon of Vipassana quite painful, quite fretful. If we stay with this just a, just a little bit. And and difficult questions again. So in a romantic sexual relationship, I don't even know how to put the question, but what is true passion? What's true desire? What is that? What do I even mean by that? The Buddha asks a lot, for whatever is happening, he asks, what's feeding it? That's a very principal question for him. So whatever is happening, what's feeding this thing? And so we can see in this area, with passion desire around sex and romance, sometimes when there's a feeling of alienation from ourselves or from life, uh, disconnection, it's actually uh, the importance of that uh, gets gets heightened. We need that, and, and somehow the passion gets injected with the energy of a sort of desperate sense of wanting to heal an alienation or disconnection. We may not even be aware of it. Or a sense of loneliness, of course, or the fear of loneliness in the future. How much is the passion and the desire fed by a kind of uh, massive, massive cultural hype of, of the sort of prime significance uh, of, of uh, sex and romance, pr- primarily romance. It's become probably the god of this culture, maybe next to consumerism, but uh, it's, it's the thing which is raised above almost everything else as, as that which will everyone really wants and will make you happy. It's in Hollywood, it's in advertisements, it's, in, it's all over the place. It, it wasn't actually always like that, uh, historically. That we have the same view of intimate relationships as we do now, at this point in history. But how much is our passion and desire being fed by that? Or a feeling of incompleteness, and we're looking for someone to give us that sense of completeness, fears, beliefs, etc., of what we need to be happy. It's not, not easy questions and sometimes just sexually um, there is stress and tension from work, from whatever and how much are we actually seeking sex as a form of release? One releases in orgasm and, and there's the release of that tension how much is, is the whole thing being fed by that? So that was a whole bunch of negative reasons not to... Not to uh, say that passion and desire is always being fed by uh, unreal and negative reasons, but actually to begin to look into all this. And where is it leading? Where is it leading? So again, is it leading to a kind of shrinking? Or is it leading to a keeping alive of our hunger, uh, sp- our spiritual hunger? Is our, if we're in a romantic relationship, are we really growing together? Or are we just sort of, whatever, something else? So being human, it's messy, and actually the, the, the usual scenario is there's, there's multiple mixed motivations in all of this, and it's, it's very complex what we bring to sexuality and what we bring to romantic relations. It's extremely complex. Thankfully, we can actually work with all this, and despite there being uh, perhaps not the greatest motivations, we can actually work with all that. So that um, what, what comes and what flowers is actually something very beautiful and very nourishing to, to both people. At least that's a potential. So passion and desire... If i had to talk a little bit about energy, because as I said, passion, passion and desire are forms of energy and they need energy. Um, so and Sometimes se- sexuality and sexual release uh, can be a way that we actually squander energy. So in, uh, in Taoism they talk a lot about um, uh, keeping your, your sexual energy, preserving the sexual energy and learning how to do that. I'm going to go into that too much now, but um, I actually don't think it's that simple. Energy is very important though. It's, it's, a, it's a very striking thing. Uh, being on retreat, and just seeing how, how tiring it can be being on retreat. Where does our energy go? We're actually just sitting, and then we're sort of toddling up and down a bit. In this case, we're doing a bit of work, but for most part, it's not that strenuous. And yet... And then come 9.30, or come actually 9 o'clock, and we're dreaming of the <laughs> of the bed. And it's, I mean, who goes to bed at 9.30? <laughs> just... You know, this, what's going on in retreat that our energy gets sapped that way? It's quite curious actually here, living at Guy House, because um, just genetically, whatever, I'm a bit of a night bird, so it's often me who wanders around quite late at night, turning off all the lights, or whatever lights are remaining. And usually, the, it's amazing, the whole place is in bed by, uh, I won't even say what time, <laughs> it's quite early. And I've noticed there are a few Qi gun retreats during the year. And they get up very early, like 5 o'clock in the morning to do Qigong. And I came in at something like 11.30, at several, ta- several different retreats at night, expected to find an empty hall with the lights on, and opened the door and there were 10 or 12 people sitting, still meditating. And I just started wondering about, is there something, obviously, about the Qigong, something about that we need to take care of our physical energy to keep our, um, our kind of passion for practice alive as well? So this, this business of, sort of the movement of energy in the body is, is very important, uh, it's very important. Sometimes uh, at a very, well sometimes not so subtle, but at quite a subtle level, that energy flow in the body is actually blocked um, by different things that we do. It's, it shuts down. This is a very important area to investigate. One of the things that shuts down the flow of energy, or or contorts it a bit, is our non-attention to how we're living in terms of ethics. So what we're doing in that respect can actually fracture the energy flow in a subtle way. Well, then the whole in this whole area of passion, desire, energy, uh, something like alcohol. This is this is quite interesting. Again, I was talking to someone the other day, told me they were having a friend round and they really uh, wanted to be really present to this friend. And then they thought, well, shall just have half a glass of wine before they come? And then they thought, well, well, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be that, I wouldn't be fully present, you know, fully alive, passionately there. And they were sort of dithering, I think it was a glass at first, and they ended up having half a glass as a sort of compromise. And they, they noticed, wow, it just t- it really took the edge off the presence, of the aliveness. Just such a small amount of alcohol. And again, I you know, people interpret the fifth precept about alcohol and drugs in, in a number of different ways, but I encourage this an experimentation here. If you if you notice that it, it takes your edge off, take it, if if there's a, a decrease in sensitivity, a decrease in passion, it's quite significant. Can, are we willing to experiment with all this? So with alcohol and some drugs, it actually feeds some passions. You know, and a lot of violence obviously comes out of that. <coughs> but, and sometimes we feel that alcohol is again going to nourish our romantic and sexual uh, kind of feelings and energy. But actually it doesn't. <coughs> it doesn't. Sometimes what it does is, it just uh, there's a slight uh, letting go of certain inhibitions which may free up more energy. But to investigate all this stuff, investigate. So passion, desire, effort is related to this, if we go back to practice. Effort, uh, effort in practice, and how are we holding that effort in practice? So again, it's quite interesting looking back over this insight medita- meditation tradition over the last, say, 30 years. When it first started, and the sort of first wave of teachers came back from the East, it was really gung-ho, the whole thing. And maybe some of you were even around, and I don't know. It was very gung-ho, very much about nibbana or bust, and you sit through everything and you grit your teeth and you get on with it. And uh, didn't have such great results. <laughs> people went a bit bonkers. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, no, I wouldn't actually know. Um, now what's happened, it seems to me what's happened, is that's kind of gone to the other extreme. And it's actually very rare to hear people talking about goals, to be, have people sitting up here talking about nirvana. Very, it's very rare you can hear the word used anymore or the ultimate goal of practice, or anything like that. There's been a movement away from, it's, it's okay, it's okay, just be in the moment. And a lot, a much more softness comes into the practice, which is, you know, again has its pluses and minuses. But it's just interesting. So going back to Deva, a sense of aspiration, confidence, joy, and rest. All those together give a balanced effort. But again, Sometimes practice feels really hard, we feel like we're really making an effort in practice. But the effort, in a way, is, is to be with things in a way that they ease, they ease. This is the movement of what I call insight. It's not about being with what is, it's not about sitting through what's really painful because it must be doing me some good. It's about finding ways of relating to the present moment and what might be difficult in the present moment that bring some sense of ease. That's what insight is. When there's insight, there's ease. And so, the ho- bearing that in mind, the whole question of effort in practice becomes an actual softening, becomes a softening. It's not about this hard-edged, kind of brittle pushing. So another area with all this, with our passion for practice, with our energy, with our effort, is, is, is sleep. And that's, that's a really interesting one. Uh, some people uh, are of the school, uh, maximum four hours sleep on a retreat, and uh, so they, and, and they, they do that, and they take three or four hours sleep. And for some people it really works, it's fine. I've, seen, I've worked with people, they do that, take three or four hours sleep, and they're just nodding all the time, and there's no deepening of the insight on the other extreme, I have people who insist they need nine or nine and a half hours of sleep, no matter how long they've been on retreat, and that's what they need, and if they don't, it all goes to pot. (laughs) And and yet, in some cases, those people, incredible deepening of insight, and I just think, you know, any preconceptions I had about this sleep business have just completely gone out the window. Uh, So I, I tend to respect what people say. But, again, How free are we to experiment with this area? So usually we just decide, I need a certain amount of sleep, I absolutely need it. Or whatever, or no, I must get this amount, this minimal amount, or whatever. Are we free to experiment, and really, really um, fearless with this, and just willing to see what happens? So laziness as well, in, in relation to effort and passion. And we use that word, lazy, and in a way, if you start looking at it, what is it really? What's laziness? If I feel, right, I'm too lazy, what does it actually mean? If I look it, if I probe it, what it actually is, is um, it's a kind of aversion. I'd rather not do that because I think it's going to feel bad, or greed, or fear. So laziness can be fear masked, or laziness can also be, again, a lack of confidence. I won't even try because I just feel I'm not going to be able to do it, I, I, won't, I won't succeed. Lack of self-esteem, I'm not really worth it, I'm not really worth making the effort. So don't uh, settle for this word laziness, it's, in a way it's a lazy word, it's just, it's just not, not, not inquired into. Tiredness is also really interesting, it's a very interesting thing, tiredness. If we, experience, if we feel, like I'm really tired now, and you're on the cushion, and you're really tired, try and find that tiredness. Try and find it. Y- you actually can't find it. You can't find tiredness. So what happens... <laughs> what happens is um, there's a, a sense of tiredness, and we label it, and then we're reacting to this label. If I actually look for the tiredness, I can't find it. What I I will find is a momentary perception of something. Something as as sort of vague and ephemeral as a sort of pressure behind the eyes. That's all I'll find. And it's just a moment of experience. And a moment of experience that's actually not independent of my aversion to it. And that's what allows tiredness to gain a grip. That's also... (laughs) (laughs) That's also one of the reasons why, why we're often exhausted at the end of a day of retreat. Because there's all this stuff coming up we have to feel like we need to deal with, and it. it's just pushing it away, pushing it away, even at a subtle level. It's exhausting. Aversion is exhausting. When there's tiredness, there's a sense of some kind of tiredness which we're averse to, and we get, it builds. The tiredness itself is not independent of our, our relationship to it, of our aversion to it. Explore this. See if you can really find tiredness. So, I have mentioned a lot in this retreat, in the instructions, about energizing the attention. Sometimes we can feel tired or dull or whatever. Bringing energy into the attention, actually raising the energy level of the attention. Bringing investigation into the practice, so it's not just a passive witnessing. Actually really coming close to experience, or asking questions, asking questions in practice. Why is there suffering here? What's feeding this suffering? So in, in life, in the, in the whole sort of arena of life, it's, it's quite clear when we look that an enormous amount of energy comes out of desire, enormous amount. I mean, um, b- buildings and, and uh, wars and this and that, and an enormous amount comes out of craving and aversion, huge desire, a uh, huge energy in life, huge amount gets done, fueled by what's coming out of um, craving and aversion. I mean, phenomenal. In practice, though. I mean, we can see see that in our lives. In practice, though, we can begin letting go of craving and aversion, at at any level, and just getting deeper and deeper, letting go of craving and aversion, and actually seeing that a whole other level of energy is liberated through non-craving, non-aversion, the stillness of desire a whole other level of reservoir of energy is liberated there. And you can see this on the cushion and off the cushion. And sometimes just you're in a you know, you're talking to someone or, or in some relationship situation and you're actually tired and partly it's because some kind of aversion has crept in. And you're just like, well, when's this person gonna finish? Or when can I be free of this situation? You see it on the cushion as well. On the cushion you can see it really clearly. That's the advantage of meditation. So if, like the Buddha, we, take, we actually take our desire extremely seriously, which is a very rare thing, to take that desire for happiness and, and freedom, and really take it completely seriously. But if, like him, we do that, we get to a point where it begins to come kind of full circle. And we actually see that the desire for freedom and happiness leads to a kind of dropping of desire, a letting go of desire. <coughs> Because it's bad, not because desire is bad, and we're told that desire is bad, but because we, in the stillness of meditation, we actually feel, we're sensitive to, in the body and in the being, uh, what it feels like to be in a relationship of craving or aversion, with anything, no matter how subtle. We feel that that in itself, that state of desire, of pushing or pulling, <coughs> is, is a state of contraction and suffering to whatever degree, it might be very subtle, and it becomes very obvious, and you can actually feel that in practice, <coughs> and then the movement towards freedom and happiness obviously then becomes letting go of desire, letting go of desire, letting go of, and releasing that contraction, that suffering, at whatever level. That release is then a freedom and a happiness. Sometimes we just hear this and we want to drop desire in a way too early, when there's not enough yet stillness uh, to be able to see the subtle workings of desire. Because desire is extremely subtle. We say, oh, desire is all bad, I'll just let go of all of that. I won't try my meditation because that's just trying. <coughs> uh, it's, it's, too, it's premature. It's premature. We need, as I said uh, yesterday, a reservoir of happiness, a reservoir of well-being. And we need the stillness to really see and feel the movement of desire and what impact it's having on the being. <coughs> and it's, it's extremely subtle. So what happens when we actually begin to work in this way, and drop the desire, release the desire? What happens if we release the sense of self, uh, very deep levels of practice, release the sense of self as a sort of center of gravity for desire? What happens when we uh, lose interest in the objects of desire? So the Buddha talks a lot about dispassion. He talks about dispassion. And sometimes the texts have made that into (coughs) a disgust, that, you know, if you practice deeply, you get disgusted at the world, and everything's disgusting, and the body is disgusting, and people are disgusting, and everything's disgusting. I don't think practice should lead to a sense of disgust like that. But, uh, what can happen is that as we, for instance, contemplate the impermanence of things, the inability of things to really satisfy us in in a completely fulfilling and lasting way, we look at the moment's experience and we see it, it's impermanent, it's unsatisfactory in a, in a complete way, we just let go and let go and let go. There comes what we c- could call a state of dispassion. It's not disgust. Disgust is when aversions crept back in. State of dispassion, very open, <coughs> <coughs> very beautiful, very shot through with love, this is quite a deep level of practice I'm talking about now. A lot of freedom there. What's happened is we're not fixing on one thing, this thing or that thing, I want this thing, I don't want that thing, pushing and pulling. And there's a state of openness and kind of innocence of being. something else begins to be seen in that space. So not only is it beautiful and we've let go of a lot of a uh, lot of sense of contraction, something else begins to be evident. It's quite radical actually. The actual presence of things in consciousness, the very appearance of things, is ends up being dependent on our desire, on whether we're pushing or pulling, having a relationship of struggle. That pushing and pulling, pushing away what we don't like, pulling or pulling or towards us or trying to keep what we like, is actually a factor that builds up experience. It makes experience stand out, this thing, that thing, makes it prominent in consciousness. This is a really remarkable thing. The actual experience itself, the phenomena itself, it, we say in Dharma language, is empty. It depends on my relationship with it, on my having a relationship of struggle with it. It's not even... Uh, it barely makes logical sense. Master Eckhart, one of the Christian mystics, um, talks about that story from the New Testament where Jesus uh, overturned the tables of the moneylenders in the, in the temple. And he says, what's that about? And he says, it's about wanting things in your prayer, in your meditation. You're, you're a moneylender, you're looking for something in the temple in looking for something in the temple and if you're looking for something you're looking for something that's not it that can't be god or the ultimate truth something and the movement of desire is a movement of time and in time and he says how can we open to the timeless through desire because desire itself is about time it's about getting something in time How can that open to the timeless? In a way, in practice, just to finish, in a way, we have two approaches. And I've been touching on this uh, all through the retreat. We have the approach, I'm going to build a sense of well-being. I'm going to follow my desire for happiness. I'm going to follow my desire for that and build that and cultivate that there's one approach in meditation. <coughs> the complementary approach is to be in the moment, relating to the moment, just letting go of desire, letting go of any kind of pulling toward or pushing. And they're complementary. They end up meeting at very deep level. But they're actually complementary. We can think about which mode we're in at the time. What is it to be in the moment and just be letting go any desire in relation to experience. So sometimes with this, uh, if we talk about passion and goals in practice, people say there is no goal, there's no goal in practice. But when we understand this emptiness a bit more uh, deeply, you can't say no goal without also saying there's no where you are, there's no what it's like in the moment, either, because that's empty too. Because of what I said, it depends on my relationship with it. In itself, it's nothing. So sometimes people use this argument of non-duality, no goals, nothing to get, just be where you are. Just be where you are. Where you are is it. This is it. Right here, right now. This is it. And that's it's, it's, it's a it's a lovely feeling when we hear that. It's like, phew, Thank goodness. Or maybe not so lovely but it's quite a strong, uh, strong message in a lot of teaching. But if we're really going to look into this deeply, you, you have to see there is no this is it, there is no where you are. There is only no goal, truly, there is only no goal to the extent that there is no where we are in the moment. And somehow it's actually about really understanding that, where, where the deepest freedom lies. So, again, some of this may sound very abstract to you, but this is, this is very real uh, possibilities I'm talking about. Very real possibilities for all of us. It's not something, uh, you know, uh, on another planet far removed. Should we just be quiet for a few minutes together? Thank <laughs>